Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. You know, I think that thing would cause like a trauma that you carry and have to work out in therapy. I mean, I don't even mean like getting left at home by your parents. I mean, just like having Buzz as a brother. That's traumatic. And I mean, the getting left by your parents, I think that's criminal negligence, right? Like, I'm not sure when criminal negligence became funny, but um, <laughs> I know. But that crazy, it happens. It, it, it's not that far from the truth. It's the way it goes. We carry this underlying tension of strained relationships, but we don't have to face them, so we don't. We sweep them under the carpet or into the corners. We compartmentalize them, and then we get to the holidays knowing we're going to have to face them, and so we just hunker down, and then invariably somebody sets it off, right? Somebody tries bravely, but maybe um, methodologically foolishly to address the crazy, and the whole thing blows up. Has this ever happened to you? Was any of you the, the one who left home and then went off to college or whatever you did when you left home and then received a burst of clarity, an impartation of understanding with regard to everything wrong with your parents? And then you felt a sense of mandate, like a mission from heaven to right those wrongs. And so did anyone come home for their first Christmas at home and be like, we need to talk about some things that we never talked about. And then you throw the grenade on the table and then, not that that was me. But I think every family has, maybe you were the peacekeeper, the one that above all tried to make sure that the family norms weren't getting violated by the little brother who was me, you know, and you were trying to keep it from, from straining. And maybe you were the one who rightly perceived and wrongly expressed that conflict. I'll tell you what, the advent is relationally, a powder keg, right? Last week, what we looked at is that Jesus came for relational reconciliation. That's part of the healing. It's part and parcel to his arrival in the Advent season. He came like light into the darkness and central to the darkness into which he came then and into which he comes again now is the darkness of relational fracture and strain. He's not okay with that. He calls that darkness. God is relational. He lives in perpetual communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made us in his image, knowing, as Scripture says, he places the lonely in families, that we were made to experience some of our God identity by being in relationship with those families. And so Jesus isn't willing to leave well enough alone. He came like light into that darkness, And he invites us, he instructs us to advocate for the gospel, healing, restoration, and hope in the relationships that all too easily as time passes get moved to the corners and um, eventually lead our hearts to get hard. Our title this morning is Leaning In. 
Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to look in verse 10. Jesus talking, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. A familiar passage, mostly because of its more famous parallel passage in Luke chapter 15, where the lost sheep is joined with the lost coin and the marquee story in that three parable passage, the prodigal son, to communicate God's heart for the wayward and lost. In Matthew's version, though, the the focal point is less on God and the estranged child of God and more on human to human and the stretched relationship. Complementary, not conflicting in meaning by any means, both are part of Jesus' heart. But here, in emphasizing these little ones, he's not talking about children. Contrary to what popularly we hear, the pop theology of, of guardian angels following children around comes from this passage, and I don't know that that's an irresponsible interpretation, but he's not primarily talking about children. He's talking about the least, the last, the person who is the last, the 10 out of 10 to get it figured out to find the courage, to get self-aware, to lean into and embrace healing, and then to be able to function in a healthy relational dynamic. Go after even the least, even these little ones, is what Jesus is referring to. And the emphasis in this story, scholars conclude, is more on the one leaving and going to find. Where in, in Luke, it's God going the extra mile, which he does in Matthew's rendition, he communicates Jesus' heart for our relationship. And this is really the big picture that I want us to start from in this passage. God's heart for relationships is pursuit and restoration. God's not willing to leave well enough alone. Where we, over time, come to a, a functional stasis point where we batten down the hatches in our heart and we just white-knuckle it and clench our teeth and get through it. We're not going to let them make us do it wrong. And so months turn into years, turn into decades, and those relationships harden and separate. And that has destructive consequences. Matthew highlights Jesus' value for our relationships. He catches Jesus saying, see that you do not despise even one of these, even the hardest to relate to, even the one who's hurt you so many times that in your better judgment, you're like, he's never going to get it if he has it by now. She's too far gone. See to it that you don't despise them, that your hearts don't get hard toward them. That phrase interested me, so I did a little research, and the imperative verb form comes from the root word in Greek, horeo, which literally translates take care or watch out. But invariably, in the New Testament translational uses, it comes in the context of a stern warning. So you might read it like this, Jesus saying, see to it that you don't despise one of these, that you don't look on anyone, even the most difficult to relate to, even the problem child or parent in the family, with hardness in your heart. Jesus is saying 
with a stern warning. Don't be content to let relationships harden and drift. He's saying, go after them. Of course, that's easier said than done. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 writes, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And you've heard me and Pastor Darius over the years teach this passage in the context of our church's mission toward racial and sociological unity. And that's important. But our efforts, I suggest, to pursue, to make every effort for unity out there are much less meaningful if we're not making every effort to pursue relational unity in here. Scripture says God places the lonely in families, and it's in the context of community. It's in the context of those close relationships in which Jesus has fashioned us to grow, that we experience the fullness of our God-likeness. And so it makes sense that he would hold out for us not to just write him off. Relational fractures over time remain unpursued and harden like a path of least resistance. Most of us don't set out such that a decade from now we wish that we would have no relationship or hunker down and get through it relationship with the people whom God created us to live in closest community with. But what happens is relational strain that remains unpursued over time resolves into resentment, and that's a double death. It's death to the relationship. Once resentment sets in, it's like when the blood turns septic. The whole thing pays the price. But it's doubly death. It's death to our souls. Because insofar as we are made in God's image for relationship, we're made to thrive in community. When we squander or forfeit the community that is central to our creation without trying, and we just say, you know what, in my judgment, that one's a lost cause. We invite a limitation. We accept a shortcoming in God's goodness and his growth and development, his good plans for our lives. We pay the price. I've heard it said that resentment is like drinking poison and hoping another person will die. And furthermore, it robs your joy. Even if it weren't death to you and the relationships that God intended to comprise the fullness of your God-likeness, It's joy and peace that are the dividends of the advent of Jesus. This is the mystery. Christ came into the world. We celebrate and remember that. But Christ is coming into the world, into the darkness. That is our present reality. And Christ will come again. And at each arrival, there is the expectation of joy and comfort and peace. And we forfeit this when we write off relationships before Jesus has led us to. And I say, why concede the Christmas season to the enemy every year? Why tell him, you know what, deceiver and liar, you can make the most wonderful time of the year, the time that we celebrate and receive anew the arrival of Christ our King, who is making all things well. I'm just going to 
hunker down, batten down the hatches of my heart, clench my teeth, and get through it. Why give the enemy that victory? In verse 15, Matthew 18 continues, Jesus speaking again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This passage is full of practical wisdom, but first it's worth noting that Jesus talks about your brother. It's gender exclusive, but I believe that it stands for all close relationships. Your brother may or may not be your male biological sibling, but it's your sister, it's your mother, it's your child, it's the people in close relational context to your life. Jesus is saying, in other words, this isn't about the person that, you know, in your yoga class who always got too close to you and bugged you until you told them off and now that relationship's drained. Things to do there, but he's talking about the inner circle of relationships. And let's be honest, these are a challenge when they're strained. I think we're instinctively better at the outer ring relationship strain than the inner because the stakes are so high. I think we, if we're honest, we tend to butcher these things when we do lean in. We go from over here, don't engage it, and then we decide, like Yosemite Sam, I've had all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And then we swing the pendulum all the way over here and we go in guns blazing and make a mess of it. And we end up knocking buzz onto the table and creating a huge disaster. And then our uncle, who is definitely maladjusted, says, look what you did now, you little jerk. Like, who says that to a kid? But that's where it goes. And so then, after trying and it blowing up in our face, we understandably say, see, that's what happens in my family. And we never try again. We made like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Jesus' message, heart and soul of Advent, the light shining into the darkness of our relational strain asks us to lean in. But the bottom line in this passage is Jesus is saying, do that, pursue restoration, pursue reconciliation, but do it with great care, with great intentionality. See how intentional Jesus' directions are? Very un-Jesus-like if you think about it. Normally, he gives sort of a big picture truism and leaves it to us to figure out the details, but not here. You can tell how important this type of restoration is to Jesus by how specific and prescriptive and practical he becomes. Jesus knows he lived it too. He had Peter, the little brother who threw the grenade on the table enough times. Strained relationships are a powder keg of a context for leaning in. All the more at Christmas time, where if you live in Western civilization in the 21st century, you're experiencing added strain as sort of the latent backdrop. And so tensions are high anyway, fuses are short, nerves are frayed. 
And then we come waltzing into that room saying, I have had all I can stand because I can't stand no more with guns blazing and the thing blows up. It's like, it's like in, in um, which, um, Empire, and Empire Strikes Back, when Han lands the Millennium Falcon inside the Exogorth, you know, the giant space slug. Many of you are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. And here's how I feel. I, I don't feel bad about that. I just pity you. I pity you. And if this is for me and Dale alone, where are you at? If this is for us, then I'm good with that. But you know where, and the rest of you, just know that you have my pity. And so the Millennium Falcon lands in the Exegorth, but they don't know it. And so they're getting on there walking and they're like, oh, it's kind of spongy. And then, um, you know, they find Minox like attacked to the, attached to the fuel line. So this Han pulls out his blaster and starts shooting them off. And the whole cave moves because they're inside a giant space slug and they don't even know it. And then they quickly get the Millennium Falcon put back together and fly out just as the huge jaws of the Exogorth close. You're like, nope, still nothing. <laughs> You're not feeling it. I am totally feeling it. So that was for me. A Dale, I'm confident, is feeling it. See, Dale, he's going out in the spirit right now. <laughs> Someone catch him. All right, so what's the point? The point is we come into these delicate spaces and as if we're unaware that we're inside a giant spaceship-eating space slug, start shooting from the hip and the thing blows up and we're like, see, it was never gonna work well. Jesus says, engage it carefully. This is the most delicate and fragile of ground and among the most important to our Savior and to our well-being. So be careful leaning in and we'll blow it up. Let's look practically at what Jesus said. First, you ready to get practical? Okay, go and tell him his fault. And we'll use the, the masculine pronoun gender inclusively. Is that okay? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's a couple of practical nuggets that we can mine out of this. First, as a context, Jesus makes clear by implication, don't tell it to him in the moment that it flares up. Go to him alone. The temptation is, I think, threefold. The first is when we hear it, we get triggered. It, whatever the it is, the thing that they've done since we were born or that drives us crazy or that creates the conflict and perpetuates it Christmas to Christmas. And then you hear it and you're like, okay. And you get triggered. You go from like a two to a nine. And then you're like, we're having it out right now in front of everybody. So to do it in the moment, dynamite, to do it with the, everyone around. That's just unlikely to go well, even with the most relationally mature hearer, let alone somebody who maybe isn't that way, isn't as emotionally healthy, right? And then there's an intentionality to calm ourselves down, to become self-regulated. There's a responsibility we accept when we do it Jesus' way. And so there's threefold wisdom in starting out alone makes me self-regulate, it makes me choose a context that isn't the heat of the moment, and it makes me de-escalate the thing by not doing it in front of others, hoping that they'll join my constituency and gang up on dad, and that's going to be the thing that gets him to roll over and play nice. Never did work out that way. Go and tell him his fault. Okay, second, in Jesus' teaching, fault is singular. And you're like, yeah, 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 but maybe for him, his brother only did one thing wrong. But like, my brother? 
There's like 17 faults. So I've been, fortunately, you're giving me this message now because I've been preparing this list for six years. And so when I get them alone, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it. But Jesus said, go and tell him his fault. Pick one at a time. And you're like, yeah, but this is my chance. If I get him, I may never get this again. But listen, I think the wisdom of Jesus is less is more. If we try to bring up everything, it's likely because we're all humans that that heart openness is going to shut down. It's going to close real quick. And then we're not going to get anything that we're looking for. So, well, which one? Where do I even begin? There's so many. Pick one. Or talk to somebody. Talk to a counselor and unpack this and ask him to help you think through which is maybe the most meaningful. Or talk it out with a friend or with your spouse or girlfriend or roommate and have them tell you back which one did you hear the most passion, the most energy on. It may or may not be strategically the most meaningful, but it's the one that perhaps is living largest in your heart. Or if all those fail, go talk to Pastor George. He'll tell you which one. He'll be like, eh, do that one. And then just listen to him. But start with one. It doesn't so much matter which one it is. Bring up one fault. That's the way to win. And then what happens is, as Jesus' growth wraps around this relationship and brings it forward, then there's more opportunity to reinvest the healing dividends. All right, second phrase, he says, if he does not listen, fold your cards, go home and say, see, told you so. That's not Jesus' way. Instead, take one or two others along with you at this point. Baked in there are a couple more practical tidbits. First, there is a second effort. Make multiple efforts. Jesus said, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And the thing that we do instinctively is, especially if this has been a long time coming and it's bubbled up in our hearts, we self-regulate, we study the Word of God, we pray it through, and we do it the right way, and it doesn't go well, we've played our hand. And we're like, you know what? See, I've, I'm done. Forget it. And that kind of thing comes up in us. But Jesus says, make multiple efforts. If it doesn't work the first time, let there be a second. And with it, incrementally increase the intensity. It, he does model escalation, taking it to the next level, but escalate slowly. If we don't fold the cards after trying once and having it not work, like C told you so, we tend to go from a three to a 10 because it sets us off, which requires great self-awareness. It might serve you well to have a partner an accountability partner or a family member who's not directly related, maybe not someone in your nuclear or family of origin, but um, somebody who can walk through it with you and help you see yourself clearly so that we escalate, we increase the intensity slowly. Otherwise, it blows up, not because there was no other way this could go, but because of our own dysregulation. Let me, note, let me point out uh, as a side note that Jesus says, go to him alone. And if he doesn't respond, then bring in one or two others for clarity. That's maybe when you ask your sister, hey, would you sit with me and talk to mom and let's prayerfully address this? Maybe there's a greater clarity that comes when two people are saying it. That's what Jesus said. But 
to start out with the two or three. You're like, ah, oh, I'm just going to, I've done that a bunch in the past, so I'm just going to skip to step two. Do you know what that's called? Gossip. That's what gossip is. It's talking to somebody else about the thing you should have talked to him or her about. It's simply going to step two without taking the brave, self-effacing step one. And nobody owns gossip, right? Like, I mean, if we steal from our company, we might know we're wrong, but we know we did it. Or if you, if you hit somebody in your frustration, you might think they deserved it, but no one's like, no, I didn't hit you. Yes, yes, you just did, right? But nobody owns gossip. Nobody thinks that's me. We see it in others. But when we do it, it's because of good reason. Well, gossip is good reason, bad process, right? Gossip is doing the right thing the wrong way. Addressing relational tension in your family is good and righteous. Addressing it with others before you address it with the one or addressing it with others in the, in the discussion before you've given the, the violator the dignity of talking about it alone. We're just as wrong as the person who hurt us and we compound the relational fracture. All right, that's not really the point. That's just, uh, you can't read Matthew 18 without stopping there for a moment. Okay, third, if he refuses to listen to you and the one or two others that you bring, tell it to the church. Well, this requires a little bit of interpretation because there's a significant contextual difference between the church of Jesus' day and ours. Jesus' church day they met in homes. They were micro-churches, and so it was a couple of families, and so there was a family dynamic involved, and that was the setting uh, uh, to have a family conference, right? And so to do that, you'd have to be intentional. You'd have to go to the house church leader, the elder that, that runs that gathering, and say, hey, can I have a few minutes in our meeting in the next few weeks? Because I need to address something that's, um, that's affecting our interrelational circle here. Well, in our church, if you, if you went home to Pennsylvania and things blew up with your parents because you tried step one and step two, and you're like, hey, Pastor George, could I have five minutes in the announcement time? Because I need to tell the church. That, that's different. That's more like group therapy. <laughs> and while helpful, probably not this function. But here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Start individual and then proceed small, and then schedule a family conference. Have you ever done that? Schedule a family conference. Or maybe this is like your house full of roommates and you schedule a roommate conference, a house meeting. It takes selfless, sacrificial servant leadership to do it. I would suggest practically, don't dive bomb them. Don't say, hey, everyone come over for dinner and then pounce on him with this topic. That's just less likely to go well. Schedule a conference. Hey, everyone, I love being a part of this family. Try the sandwich method. Tell them a reason why, what they've meant to you. I love how we all, you're like, I can't find anything. Played croquet together when I was 12. I don't know, anything. Something positive that unites and then I'd like to, because I love and value you guys so much, and I think if, if God is part of the vocabulary in your family, believe that God has good things for us, I want to invite you guys over, make dinner for you, or I'll order the pizza or whatever, and then and have a family conversation. Would you be willing? 
And by the way, I love you all. You're really wonderful croquet players or whatever. Think of something for the other piece of bread and the sandwich. Schedule a conference. And then Jesus models telling it to the church. When you stand up here, if say Pastor George did say, well, I can give you a minute in the announcement, you're going to think through what you're going to say, right? You're not going to stand up and just vent. You're going to be intentional. And so make the effort to keep it focused. Know that this is the setting most susceptible to boom and beyond recovery. And so come in with the servant leadership attitude of keeping it focused. Again, on one thing, a baby step, a small win that creates Jesus traction for those relationships that have been tense, gosh, maybe for decades, to thaw, to come a little closer together, and then makes it less dramatic and impossible to imagine when you have another conversation. Ephesians 4, Paul says, then, once we've received the grace of God, once Jesus has entered our hearts, he begins this healing, this freedom, this restoration work. And then we'll no longer be immature like children. We don't have to stay the way we were when this pattern got established. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. See, when we speak the truth in love as mature adults, not snapping to the immature patterns of the time maybe when this relational tension got established, when we speak the truth in love, what happens is everybody grows more and more like Christ and into Christ. And as that happens, there's more and more hope because it doesn't rest on us and our cunning and our skill and our remembering Jesus' list and doing it just the right way. It rests on Jesus. And that's really where the hope rests at the end of the day. Friends, I can testify. I come from a good family who loves one another and loves me. And in my later, my, my 30s and 40s, middle-aged life, my family has grown. Even as my father's health has declined and he's less able cognitively to participate, my sister and my mother and me, most of all, have grown more tender toward each other. We've grown more willing to um, rethink patterns that were the way we related that maybe limited the closeness such that I've told my mom and my sister, I feel closer to you now in my 40s than I ever have in my life. And I say this not to say, um, ha ha, nanny, nanny, boo boo, but listen, there's hope. There's hope. Even if it feels like you're like, yeah, but my family wasn't that good. It is a train wreck. Well, Jesus died on a cross for all the train wrecks like me and you and your family. Look at verse 18 and we'll wrap it up here. Truly I say, Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, are you, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, do it. Do it intentionally. And yes, do it carefully, but rest in the certainty that it doesn't all rest on you. That God will be at work with you in the restoration. And that's really the bright hope of Advent for our strained relationships. 
Have faith in God, Jesus seems to say, and expect more. You're taking the relationship in a direction its author wants it to go. Now, many of you, if you've grown up in a, in a full gospel church tradition, you've heard this passage taught many times in the context of spiritual warfare. And I don't disagree with that context. It's just that if you look at what Jesus has been and continues to be talking about in this passage, it's not demons or principalities or strongholds. It's relationships. And so listen to this familiar passage with fresh ears in this context. Whatever you manage to take a baby step in your own growth and imperfection and bind up on earth will be bound up in heaven. Whatever relational distance you're able to grab one hand over here and one hand over there and say, you know what, guys? Come on, come on, come on. Let's just come together. And then you're like, man, this is a really weak bond. I don't think, I, I don't think this thing is going to last more than the holiday week we're together. But what you bind on earth with this frail stuff, Jesus binds in heaven with strong, mighty stuff. He is at work in parallel with you. He died so that you could not only be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven, but so that everything about you could be restored. And so it doesn't rest on you. This is where this message diverts from the church of Oprah and from a thousand self-help books and positive thinking messages. It's not us. It's not being a relational Jedi knight. You're like, yeah, but to me to have a hope, I'd have to be like a social ninja like Pastor Darius. You know what? Jesus is like 10 times the social ninja. Jesus is at work in you, and Jesus is strong. Jesus placed you in that family. Jesus authored those relationships. Jesus died to finish them. And it is Jesus who in heaven, as your feeble hands are binding it together on earth, Jesus is binding it together in heaven, and that bond is strong and unbreakable. You're taking the relationship, even with baby steps in fits and spurts over years. You're taking it in the direction its creator wishes it to go. You're jumping into a mighty river with a swift current that flows in the direction of Jesus making all things whole. You can't honestly address this subject without facing the discouraging question, what if they won't go along? What if they won't go along with me and with God? Yes, God is powerful, but God also doesn't jump off the top turnbuckle with an atomic elbow and force us into submission. He honors our choices, even if they're broken choices. What if the person with whom I've experienced such strain is unwilling? Well, Jesus does give a fourth direction. If he refuses to listen even to the church, if even a family conference, if you will, doesn't get through, let him, let him be to you as a tax collector. Maybe you're like the tax collector vigilante going around single-handedly wiping out all the world's crooked tax collectors. I don't think that's what he means. Just distance, and that's possible. And we're going to get into that next week. Because we can't honestly address the Christmas crazy without addressing the real possibility that 
it may not go well even if I try. Romans 12 teaches, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. That says lean in. That says don't be okay with a relational strain that hardens and freezes into resentment over the course of years and decades. That says receive the advent for the light of healing into the darkness of relational brokenness. But it also says by implication, listen, there comes a point after which it simply no longer depends on you. And there is grace. There is peace and comfort for those who mourn. There is provision that Jesus has made for that possibility. We're going to get into that next week. But before we go there and ask, what if it doesn't work? Let me ask you another question. What if it does? What if it does? What if Jesus is who he says he is and does what he says he does and Christ in you is the hope of your family's glory? What if against all hope, hope prevails? What if in the midst of hardness, Jesus enters your family dynamic and softens hearts and it goes down clunky and clumsy? But what if you start to see signs of the kind of regeneration, new growth, healing, forgiveness, redemption that you never imagined possible. How would that make you feel? Just close your eyes and think about that for a second. What if your estranged 20-something child whom you haven't talked to in years came back and said, I'm sorry? What if the sibling that you've been icy toward for a decade wanted to be with you again. If your parents were willing and able to own some of the things that were so hurtful and so traumatic to you. What if the good work of God's putting all things to right through Jesus on that glorious day began now? Maybe you don't see the fullness of it this side of eternity, but what if you saw the start? Wouldn't that be worth it? What if you got to change the trajectory of generations such that you left a legacy that doesn't perpetuate this offense and resentment and relational brokenness and distance? What if your kids and their kids after them only knew a family that was close and brave and leaned into relationship and forgave and owned and loved through all the ups and downs of life? What a legacy that would be. 2 Corinthians 5 says, all of this, all of this healing, all of this redemption that Jesus came to purchase, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. What God did in us, he does through us in others. God's making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ. And see, don't you see what you're doing when you lean into strained, broken relationships is you're living the gospel. 
The very same gospel by which we are healed, forgiven, and redeemed is the gospel by which our family members will be and the relationships which forever join us. What if you were the bringer of the hope of the gospel into your family of origin? You're like, man, it's impossible. All things are possible with God. That's what Jesus said. You're like, yeah, but they're just, it's too far gone. The Son of Man came to seek and save all that which has been lost. That's what Jesus said. I don't even know where to begin. Well, seek and you will find. That's what Jesus said. Lean in and he'll go with you. And the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything Jesus taught. That's what Jesus said. So who are you going to believe? Maybe you, you say, but, you know, I, I tried sharing the gospel with my family. You know, I went to like a campus crusade conference after Christmas one year in college and I came home and I, I sat down with my parents and I, I went through the four spiritual laws and my family was like, you know what? Keep your religion to yourself. And so that ship sailed. Well, maybe so. But what if your life is the scripture that they read? What if your changed heart and your Jesus way is the gospel message they received. Because listen, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The gospel is good news. It's not good news only to those who want to hear it and bad news to the rest. It is good news whether we know we need it or not. And the gospel is what we're living out here. The message of reconciliation by which you and I have been redeemed through Jesus is entrusted to you as an ambassador so that through us, God would reconcile. So it's not just relationships that we're working on healing. It's hearts, souls. Every one of them, the worst violator in your family is a child of God. And he's not willing that even one of these broken little ones be lost. Freely you have received, freely give. That's what Jesus said. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness when we are faithless. Thank you for coming to the earth and reconciling us when we couldn't reconcile ourselves. We were too far gone. Jesus, thank you for coming into this world like light in the darkness. And thank you for coming into the darkness of our broken hearts and broken relationships. And I pray for my friends, your words, Jesus, to come alive. I pray for courage and I pray for comfort in the spaces where relationships have not only become strained, but where they have taken and where they have hurt so many times that we've said no more. Lord, I pray for a healing in the hearts of our church family so we would be able to be agents of your healing in our families. Lord, I pray you'd make us courageous and wise. Jesus, truly, you doeth all things well.
Help us to do this work the way you did. And would you bring hope back into our families this Christmas season? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 